0: Today is Palm Sunday, which historically marks the beginning of a week oftentimes referred to as Holy Week. This is a week that historically many Christians have celebrated um, a special day leading up to Resurrection Sunday, or as you probably know it as Easter. And Holy Holy Week begins with Palm Sunday, which is when we remember... How Jesus entered into Jerusalem the week before he would eventually be put to death. Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem might sound to our ears like it's not that big of a deal. Like, okay, he came to the city. But we know that it's actually very, very important. And the reason we know that is because it's one of the very few events that all four Gospels contain. If you remember way back in our sermon series on John, when I talked about how John is not part of the synoptic Gospels because he tells different stories than the three. John tells different stories. But every now and then they overlap, and Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is one of them. All four Gospel authors thought this is important. It needs to be in here. And we call this very important event the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry. And we call it that because as Jesus entered the city, he is greeted by a vast host of people who are praising him like he is some kind of victorious king. So let's read John's account of this event. If you will open your Bibles to John chapter 12, and we will read verses 12 through 19 together. And when you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. John chapter 12, thus saith the Lord. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This bars the reading of God's Word. Please be seated. At the time that Jesus entered Jerusalem, there would have been literally millions of additional people present that don't normally belong there because it's Passover week. And Passover is the high holiday of the Jewish system. And at this time, Jews were not allowed to celebrate Passover in their homes or in their land, they had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to do so. So literally the Jews from all over the world have come to Jerusalem at this time. And not only would the Jews come, but because this was such a big event oftentimes even Gentiles would come. Both Gentile converts to worship and even just some to make much of the holiday. So literally, Josephus is a famous historian who he documents that roughly 2 million additional people um, were in the city at this time. Secular historians think he's being way over dramatic, um, but I take him at his word. And so this is just millions of people uh, are here. And as Jesus enters Jerusalem, many of them approach and they celebrate him as a king. They celebrate him as a victorious Messiah. And so they break into joyful celebration and praise. Let's look at that again in verses 12 and 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Let's stop there. There's a couple things that I think need explaining here. The first is the word Hosanna. I, famous word that we use all the time during Palm Sunday, but what does it actually mean? In a certain sense, it's kind of a generic word, the way it came to be used. It essentially just became to be used as a common form of praise. So when people are shouting Hosanna, they're, just, they're praising God or they're praising somebody. But where the word specifically comes from is it's basically a Hebrew word, what we call a transliteration. But it's essentially a Hebrew word that means save us now. Hosanna means save us Now, And so when the crowds are shouting Hosanna at the coming of Christ, what they're doing is they are praising Christ and they are recognizing Him as some sort of Savior. Jesus is coming here to save us and to save us quickly. As a matter of fact, what most likely is happening is they are essentially, uh, although they've augmented it a little bit, they are essentially just quoting from Psalm 118. I've got this on the screen for you. Psalm 118 says, Save us, we pray. And that word there would be the Hebrew word, Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Psalm 118 was a festal psalm, which means it was a song that was often sung by the, the, the choirs during feasts and celebrations. So this was probably a song they had already been singing, definitely a song they were familiar with. And they take those two verses and they apply them to Jesus. He's our Savior. He's our King. He's coming to save us. And this sort of helps us Understand, especially the way they augmented, it, it helps us understand a few things. It, it tells us their mindset right now is they are looking to Christ to be a political, national savior. These are people who see Christ's role as king and as Messiah as coming in to drive out Rome. To reestablish the glory of Israel and be the king, the long-awaited king over Israel. So they were anticipating from Christ a political, national salvation. And part of the way we know they're thinking that is because of the next thing that needs explaining, which is the palm branches. Right? The text is very clear that not only are they shouting Hosanna, but they went and grabbed palm branches. There would have been date palms readily available all over the region. wouldn't have been hard to get a palm branch. And they're waving palm branches at Jesus. What is the purpose of the palm branch? Well, at this time in Israel's history, the palm branch essentially served as the nation's flag. The palm branch was Israel's national flag. When you think of the flag of Israel, the two blue stripes and the star of David, that's very, very new. That was was invented not that long ago. They didn't have, they were under Roman occupation at this time. They weren't technically even permitted to have their own flag. And so that was what the palm branch served as. Uh, Just so you know how much the palm branch became a symbol of national identity, there was a certain time during the Maccabean revolt in Israel, where they started to mint their own coins. They started to make their own currency. And when they were minting their own coins, they put a palm branch on the coin. So the palm branch was very much a symbol of the nation. When you see a bunch of Israelites in the first century waving palm branches, what you're, the equivalent would be like going to a political rally today and seeing a bunch of Americans waving American flags. It's the same thing. So they are very much approaching this situation with the national identity in mind. Now, time does not permit us to explain historically how the palm branches became the national symbol of Israel. But one thing that was very clear in its development is that it was especially used during a time of military victory. The palm branches were waved and used after political or militaristic victories. And so all of this, again, reinforces the very nationalistic political mindset of the crowd. But the crowd shouting Hosanna is not the only group mentioned at Jesus' triumphal event. In fact, what I found interesting about the way John structures his narrative is that he seems to focus very much on the different kinds of people among the crowd and how they respond to the Lordship of Christ. I originally intended to preach a longer section of the text, but when I noticed this, I made a last second decision to to shorten it up. As I see it, John intentionally highlights for us the three different ways a person can relate to Jesus as king. You can choose to be a foe, a fan, or a follower. Those are the three groups represented in this crowd. There are foes, there are fans, and there are followers. It was true then and it remains true today. And so I want to work backward through John's narrative. I want to work backward through the text so that we can gradually move closer to Christ rather than away from Him. So let's look at the three different ways that we can respond to the lordship of Christ. And the first way is seeing the first way we can respond is as a foe. You could be a foe. Look at verse 19 with me. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The final group John mentions are the Pharisees. They are witnessing what is going on and they are not happy. These men are not waving palm branches. They are not shouting Hosanna. They are enraged. They recognize that Christ is winning over the world. They see in Christ's lordship a threat to their way of life. Christ threatens their teachings, their authority, their power. They don't want to lose their influence, their traditions, their beliefs, and all the success that they've worked so hard to accumulate. These are envious, prideful men whose hearts have only grown more hardened to step up their game. As they discuss among themselves, whatever approach they've been taking to the Jesus problem hasn't been working. They've gained no ground in their fight against this rabbi from Nazareth. As a matter of fact, they've gone backward. As they say, the world is going after him. And this is why we know that they will eventually collude with the Sadducees and the Romans to get Jesus killed. And it probably won't be hard for me to convince you that there are many who take the same approach to Jesus today. Our world is filled with people who absolutely hate him, which they prove through the persecution of his people, which is his body on earth. Christ has ascended. He's gone. He, you can't persecute him now. And so the, the only way to persecute Christ is through the persecution of his body on earth, the church, his people. Christ has enemies and foes who continue to persecute him out of hatred and envy. Because one does not need to be a Pharisee to rightly perceive the threat that Christ is to the ways of the world. Christ being king humbles the pride of all men. For if Christ is king over all, then every man must submit to Christ's reign. This means we lose power, we lose authority, we lose our own autonomy. Most importantly, we lose the ability to do what is right in our own eyes. And the natural man does not want to lose these things. And thus he will rage against Christ and his bride. But let me warn you, this is the wrong approach to take. I have a couple reasons why this is such a bad approach. The first reason is because Christ is simply not worthy of such abuse. Read verse 15 with me. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Jesus entered Jerusalem a very specific way. He came on two donkeys, a mother and her colts. And Jesus came with them riding on the colt. And we know why Jesus did this. He did this to fulfill the prophecy of how the king would come to Israel. But that raises the question, we know why Jesus did it to fulfill prophecy, but why did God have Jesus do it? Why did God prophesy this? Why did God predetermine that Christ would enter Jerusalem on a donkey? I, I think we're expressly told... When we see this verse that's being quoted here in its Old Testament context. So keep your marker in John 12 and turn to Zechariah chapter 9 with me. Now, you might need help finding it. Zechariah is uh, the second to last book of the Old Testament. So you don't need to go too far over um, to find it. Uh, My dad, growing up, my dad always made the joke when when we turned to books like this, that this is one of the places in your Bible with the gold on the outside. There's still gold on the outside right? Um, Zechariah chapter 9. This is where the prophecy comes from. Look at verse 9 with me. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here the text emphasizes that the donkey manifested the humility of this king. Unlike the kings of the world, this king brings salvation through humility. And so I must ask, what has Christ done to deserve our rage? Or to take the instance of the Pharisees. What has Christ done up to this point in his ministry to merit the... The the rage and the hatred of the Pharisees. So far, all we've seen Christ do is heal the sick, defend the defenseless, raise the dead, and call people to worship God. What has He done to deserve hatred? He has done nothing but be good and loving. And as we all know, from this point in time, he would eventually go on to show his love in his crucifixion. The pinnacle demonstration of the goodness of Jesus is that he died for sinners. Christ is a good and gracious king full of love and humility. He has not merely demanded our love and our allegiance, but what I'm trying to tell us is he's earned it. He is the glorious Son of God who in love and humility entered death to die for sinners, raise the dead, feed the hungry, love the unwanted, and heal the sick. But there's another reason not to be Christ's foe. In case the love of Christ has not compelled you completely, I must change my tone now and give you a second reason why you ought not to be Christ's foe foe and that's because he will destroy his foes do not mistake this gentle and lowly Christ riding on a donkey as a man you can tread upon Christ's first coming was in gentleness and humility but when he comes again in his second coming he will not be riding on a donkey Let's see how the same author, the Apostle John, metaphorically, symbolically describes his second coming. Turn to Revelation chapter 19, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Christ's second coming will be in wrath and great fury, bringing judgment on his enemies. And this, by the way, has always been the eschatological end of the Messiah. To restore all things by saving God's people and destroying all God's enemies. This is why the most popular Old Testament citation in the New Testament is a messianic promise of Psalm 110, verse 1, which reads, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There will be eternal consequences for all those who choose to commit treason against the king. However, there is another response to Jesus' authority, which is in this text, And from the outside, it might seem like a good response. But as I think you will find out, it's really just a subspecies of being a foe. And that is, if you wanted to, you could also be a fan. You could be a fan. Turn back to John. Turn back to our text in John 12 and look at verses 17 through 18 with me. Let's look at the crowd. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. Because we jump so far ahead in John, there is one important event which we have not yet gotten to, which is important to set the scene here. Not long before Jesus' entrance into the holy city, he had raised a man from the dead one of his friends named Lazarus. And there were many witnesses to this event, and so it became sort of a pivotal, pivotal miracle uh, as it pertains to Jesus' popularity. I mean, after all, it would be nearly impossible to deny that Jesus of Nazareth was truly sent from God, is truly the Messiah, once he shows he has the power to raise the dead. And so he has this reputation now. And so that is why as he enters Jerusalem, the crowds go wild. But based on the earlier chapters of John, studying his writing style and more importantly, his themes, I can say with great confidence that this is not a compliment, but rather an indictment upon these people. We've seen the theme in the Gospel of John already that John is skeptical of people who believe in Christ merely because of his miracles. We saw this very clearly at the end of John 2 which we preached not many weeks ago. Do you recall the last few verses of John 2? There were people in Jerusalem who were seeing Jesus' as many miracles and it says because of the miracles they believed. But what does Jesus do? The text tells us that Jesus did not entrust himself to them for he knew what was in man and he needed no one to bear witness about the heart of man. So there were people at John 2 who grew in appreciation of Jesus because of his amazing miracles, but they did not fully give their trust and their love to him so that Jesus never saved them. They became fans. And I think John is trying to tell us in verses 17 and 18, that the same thing is true of these crowds as is true at the end of John chapter 2. These are people who are excited about Jesus' miracles, and so I refer to them as fans. Right? Because, I mean, they're certainly not foes, at least not in the sense that the Pharisees are. They're not brooding or conspiring against Christ. On the contrary, they love Jesus. They're singing His praises. They're calling Him King. They really like Jesus. They're big fans. But based on John's descriptions, these people, I think, are not so much interested in Jesus as they are interested in what Jesus might do for them. They see Jesus not as an end in himself, but as a means to an end. If you think I'm reading too much into these verses... I really believe I'm going to be vindicated when we eventually get to the crucifixion narrative. Because there we will see that the very people who praised Jesus and celebrated his coming will be the ones who demand his crucifixion. The crowd will shift from crying, Hosanna, to crying, crucify him. Here they shake their palm branches at him, but in less than a week's time, they will shake their fists at him. And this reveals the true nature of their devotion. They are fans. They like Jesus as long as he is serviceable to them. They like Jesus just so long as he's playing on their team and abiding by their rules. But as soon as Jesus doesn't meet their expectations, they turn their back on him. This is where the donkey becomes relevant again. The donkey is more important to Palm Sunday than you might think. Because not only does the donkey symbolize or symbolize the humility of Christ, which we already discussed, but there's sort of a dual symbolism here. Because I think the donkey also symbolizes that Christ is going to be a great disappointment to these people. The donkey symbolizes how Christ is going to subvert their expectations, right? We already discussed the crowd had certain expectations and assumptions about how the Messiah was to exercise his lordship over his kingdom. But Christ knew the Father had a different set of expectations for him. And that's what the donkey symbolizes this. How? Well, let me ask you this. How would a conquering, victorious king of the first century typically enter a city how would you imagine or suppose that a glorious victorious king would enter his city would he not come striding in on a giant majestic stallion or maybe a a glorious chariot plated in gold pulled by many horses but this is not how Christ enters his city He enters on a donkey. This is a sign that he is not going to meet their expectations. It's a sign that he is altogether a different kind of king than anyone is familiar with. His kingdom is not of this world, and so we ought to expect his leadership is going to look differently than worldly kingdoms. I really like the observation that Calvin makes and and just how succinctly he puts it. Calvin says the same thing, saying that the purpose of the donkey is to show this, that Christ's kingdom will have nothing in common with the pomp, splendor, wealth, and power of the world. And it was proper that this should be made known by an outward manifestation that all might be fully assured that it is spiritual. The people wanted a king who would restore Israel to power, lead an insurrection, and drive out Rome. And instead, all they got were a bunch of lectures. They wanted an insurrection, but instead they got sermons. They were called to repent and believe. So they turned their backs on him. Why? Because they were just casual fans anyway. And eventually, he gave them a reason not to be a fan anymore. And there are many casual fans among us today as well. There are people who like Christ insofar as he is serviceable to them. I could give many examples, but I I think a helpful application to this principle would be my suspicion that this is a real danger among conservative pundits, and conservative politicians. You see, most conservatives are either Christians or they at least think highly of Christians. But there is a world of difference between being politically conservative because you are a Christian and being a Christian because you're politically conservative. And I greatly fear our country is filled with conservatives whose religion is led by their politics instead of their politics being led by their religion. What this ends up creating is people who are big fans of Jesus, but it's because Jesus agrees with them, and so they end up using him as a prop. They promote and celebrate Christ because he helps get the country where they want it to go. But as soon as Christ departs from their political platform, they will turn on Him. And here's the sad reality of this. The fans of Christ are going to spend eternity in the same place as His foes. It's not enough to be a fan. It's not enough to praise Christ as long as He gets you where you want to go or thinks the way you think. And so that leads us to what is the proper response to the Lordship of Christ. And that is not to be a foe, not to be a fan, but to be a follower. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Our text distinguishes between three kinds of people. There are Pharisees, there's the crowd, and then there are disciples. And you know, want to know what the word disciple means? It means a follower. Christ has enemies, he has fans, but he also has followers. And followers of Christ go far beyond mere fandom. Disciples do not cheer Christ on so long as he is following them. But instead, disciples follow Christ wherever he leads, wherever he calls, believing whatever he teaches. Followers are devoted entirely to Christ. They have entrusted themselves entirely to his word. Now, admittedly, Jesus' disciples were not totally there in this moment but the text makes it very clear that they got there after the resurrection. But we don't have the excuse to have that kind of progress like them. Right? We live far on the other side of the resurrection. Christ has risen and he has been glorified. And so that means the day of salvation is today. And we must pledge our allegiance to him completely today. And if you'd like some advice as to how to make sure you're a follower and not a fan, I want want us to see the emphasis this text places on the disciples' relationship to Scripture. Scripture is how we come to know Christ. We must search the Scriptures deeply to know Him. And so I think one of the the clearest ways that the difference between a fan and a follower will oftentimes be manifested in what people do with the scriptures. You see, fans of Christ are content with a shallow reading of scripture. Uh, The Jews did this very thing. The Jews and the crowds turned on Christ because they had a surface level, carnal interpretation of the Old Testament. In this text, it is only the disciples who are given insight into the scriptural connection to Christ and his triumphal entry. The implication is the crowds never truly understood the meaning of the scriptures and the Messiah's relationship to it. They had a shallow, carnal, surface level reading of the Old Testament. And so when Christ didn't live up to that mold that they casted for him with their bad exegesis, then they suddenly wanted nothing to do with him. And this is the error, since I was quick to, to criticize some conservatives, let me be uh, an equal opportunity offender. Let me criticize the political left now. Because this is an error rampant among the political left. Because there are many fans of Christ in that camp too. And many on the left will casually skim the surface of the New Testament, picking and choosing the things that they like about Jesus. Because Jesus fed the poor and he healed the sick and defended the downtrodden, he becomes the ideal mascot for the left's social reforms. But as soon as these activists are forced to take a deeper plunge into the New Testament... And find out that there is a lot more to Jesus than feeding the poor, they turn on him. So, my point is that more often than not, the difference between a fan and a follower will be revealed in what they do with Scripture. What do you think of Scripture? Is it God's inspired, inerrant word? When you interpret it, will you let the text speak for itself? Will you interpret it as a harmonious, consistent whole? And will you believe it no matter what it says? Or are you content to just pick and choose what you like and dislike based on which parts conform to the beliefs and the desires you already developed on your own without Christ? You see, another way to put it is that the difference between a fan and a follower is that a follower will believe Christ on his terms. A follower will come to Christ on his terms. And they will follow Christ wherever he leads because they love him and they trust him. And because he is king, he is king, he is the Lord of the nations. And every person who hears the words of my voice must reckon with that. And so with John the apostle as my guide, hear me implore you to please choose wisely. Do not become Christ's foe, his enemy, because he will one day subdue all his enemies under his feet in terrible destruction. Do not be his adversary. But do not merely be a fan of his either. Because Christ is worth far more, eternally more, than a casual liking. He's the eternal God and our maker. He is the one who died for our sins. He is worthy of absolute obedience, trust, and love. And so instead, I implore you, become his follower. Become a disciple, a citizen in His kingdom. Gladly submit to His rule, His peace, His love, His protection, His salvation. By faith, come to Christ the King.